Hello and welcome to this Over the Farm Gate Trade and Policy Special Podcast, brought to you by Farmers Guardian and AHDB. I'm your host this week, Farmers Guardian Chief Reporter Abby Kay. Don't forget, you can stay up to date with all Farmers Guardian's latest podcasts by subscribing through your favourite platform, whether that's Spotify, Google, Apple, Stitcher or Acast. This month, we're taking a closer look at the UK's trade policy and what it means for agriculture. The UK is already in the process of negotiating new trade deals with a number of countries, including the USA, New Zealand and Australia. But what are the opportunities and the threats? And how can farmers prepare for this brave new world being shaped around them? Here to discuss these issues with us, we have Sustain's Head of Sustainable Farming, Vicky Hurd, and AHDB Senior Policy Analyst, Tom Forshaw. Thank you both for joining us. Tom, when farmers think about the UK's trade policy, they're often focused on imports and standards. And that's a topic we will revisit later in the podcast, because you can't really talk about trade without covering it. Um, But do you want to start by telling us about the importance of food and drink exports? So the UK is a net importer of food and drink, but exports are important to the industry, aren't they? Why should farmers care about them, even the ones who perhaps don't export at the moment? Hi, Abby. and Thanks for having me along today. And you're absolutely right. Although we are a net importer of food, exports do provide a lot of value to the industry. So the UK's food and drink exports have been growing recently and in 2019 alone generated around £23.6 billion in export sales. So a lot of what the UK produces is high value, high quality, high quality products. And this is appreciated in a number of markets already around the world, but it's also well suited to our domestic market. And these exports allow supply chains to add value both to the product, but also in many cases using exports to balance supply with demand across the various product categories. So overall, exports allow the agricultural industry to be a little bit more dynamic and flexible and with access to a larger market than just the domestic market, this allows us to capitalise on increases in demand that may happen outside of the UK. And I think if we look forward into the future and what consumption trends are doing globally, being able to develop those export routes to places like Southeast Asia where demand for things like meat and dairy are forecast to continue growing are going to be crucial in order for our industries to remain competitive because I think ultimately we need to understand we're in the we're in a backdrop of overall declining consumption in, in some of those products here here in the Western world. Vicky, do you want to touch on this? Do you do you think the UK could or should be doing more to export homegrown produce? Well, I think Tom really um, nailed it there, talking about the quality produce that we can possibly compete off because we really shouldn't try and compete on the commodity markets, low price markets, makes no sense. But we could be supporting farm exports where, where it does make sense, focusing on high standard quality and being a leader in welfare organic, low pesticides uh, and those kind of areas. There, there is an opportunity there, but uh, it really is important to protect our current markets as well. Tom, Trade Secretary Liz Truss, she's got a lot on her plate at the moment. We've got talks underway for deals with the USA, Australia and New Zealand, as I mentioned in the intro. Where do the biggest opportunities come, for, uh, come from for UK producers in those deals? Are there any particular sectors which are likely to benefit? Yeah, so I think if we if we focus on New Zealand and Australia to start with, where you know some of these opportunities from a UK perspective are perhaps a little less clear, given that both of those countries are net exporters of the vast majority of agricultural products. Now, there may be small opportunities for the, the pork sector, with consumption in those two countries growing steadily and, and demand is being matched by an increase in, in imported product. 
However, it, it should be noted that there are fairly strict sanitary and phytosanitary measures when exporting pork to both New Zealand and Australia. And while this is a barrier to trade in some instances, it also means there's, there's very little competition in the way of other countries exporting pork to those regions. I think as well, when we're talking about New Zealand and in particular Australia, despite uh, being a net exporter of you know, those commodity agricultural products, when it comes to actual, actual food, so you know, more, more, potentially more processed, more added value products, in a number of categories, they are actually net importers, such as in confectionery and bakery products, as well as processed fruit and vegetables. Now, while these may not be immediate benefits to the farm gate, these sorts of added value products have the ability to lift the whole supply chain value. Having said all that, out of these three countries, it's probably the US actually where the greatest opportunities lie. So again, the US are uh, you know, a large exporter of agricultural produce, but they also import significant amounts of product, particularly in the beef, dairy and pork sectors. And, and in, in the case of pork and dairy, actually, we're already uh, exporting a decent amount of product to the US marketplace. And we recently started shipping beef after being granted access to the US market following a lengthy ban due to those historic BSE uh, issues. And I think if we just touch on lamb as well, lamb demand in the U US is growing uh, and, and something where there is the potential to export lamb to the US. However, at the moment, the UK, along with another of other countries, are currently restricted from entering the US market due to those historic scrapey cases. And I think, but, you know, that's what we're working on. And, and that's where the main opportunities lie, really, for, for those three countries. Vicky, what are your thoughts on this? I mean... Some of the things that Tom mentioned there, so getting beef back onto US plates, that's been done without a trade deal. Do you think that we actually need those trade deals to be able to harness these opportunities or, or is there another way? Well, I think we're not going to get a trade deal anytime soon. So we need to look at other ways where there is a logical um, opportunity for, for us to export to the US in particular, because Biden's decided not to use the fast track process. And he's doing a wholesale policy review, including trade policy. So it's probably going to have to go in other ways. And, and obviously there are opportunities in lamb and cheese and, and other areas. But uh, it's obviously better to ensure our current and near market access is, is sorted as a priority, um, given that the US in particular isn't going to do anything quickly. I just wanted to agree with, with Vicky there, actually. And I, I probably should have mentioned it when I was talking that as a, as a as a country, we can't forget that the European Union, despite what trade deals may or may not be signed over the next you know, couple of years, that European market is going to remain crucial to, to UK producers in terms of you know, our exports. So I agree wholeheartedly with Vicky in, in sort of sorting out the process of getting exports over to, to that market is, is crucial in the short term. And how about the downsides then? We know trade deals are only clinched when there are trade-offs. Where do the risks lie for agriculture in these new deals, Tom? Yeah, so I think as an industry, I think we need to be realistic that agriculture is only part of a trade agreement, you know, albeit one of often one of those more sensitive areas, uh, and that trade-offs will happen in order to advance UK interests in, in other areas of the trade agreement. Uh, saying that, having a trade deal with one or all of these countries doesn't necessarily mean a flood of product. So... To start off with, it's it's quite unusual in a free trade agreement, for instance, to give complete open access for the for, for some of the more sensitive products. More usually, there's like a limited access that extends over a 
over a set period of time, this gives businesses and industry time to adjust to that extra competition in the marketplace. Secondly, the, the economics of trading mean that the UK may not necessarily be the most economically advantageous place to send product for some of these partners. So, you know, trade doesn't take place so, solely on differences in cost of production, which we know the likes of the US and New Zealand and Australia do have an advantage in, in, in certain sectors. Rather, things like supply, demand and, and comparative advantage, those are the sorts of things that actually determine how trade takes place. I think finally it's worth mentioning that, you know, having a free trade agreement is only one part of the jigsaw puzzle in, in facilitating that trade. Exporters of businesses in the two countries or the, the, across those countries actually need to start developing the business relationships. And in the case of the UK, you know, when we talk about UK and EU supply chains, those business relationships have been forged over the past 30 to 40 years and are often go quite deep into the supply chain. So disrupting those relationships can often take a lot of time and investment. I think looking a bit more sector specific, we recently released a Horizon report on what a US trade deal might mean. And that highlighted that the pork sector is is the most at risk when it comes to a US trade deal uh, due to that competitive nature of US pork on the global marketplace and its relative competitiveness against our current EU suppliers. When we're looking at Australia and New Zealand, I think for me, it's beef and lamb are the areas that stand out. You know, they're large net exporters in, in these products and are highly efficient at targeting a number of markets around the world. And they actually, you know, in the case of New Zealand, already send a substantial amount of, of lamb in particular to the EU market. Um, I think it's worth pointing out as well, actually, when we're talking about Australia and New Zealand, particularly sheep meat, that sheep meat has been quite expensive globally over the past few, few years. And that has reduced New Zealand and Australia competitiveness which is why we've seen less New Zealand lamb in the European marketplace. I think, you know, this has been driven by lower production in New Zealand and Australia, but also uh, increased demand from China due to that African swine fever uh, epidemic over there, which has decimated their pig herd. Now, this situation is unlikely to last forever. So we need to be aware that if global sheep prices cool, then New Zealand and Australia are in in a good place to be able to put a lower cost product into the market while remaining relatively profitable. And I think that's where cost of production does come into it a little bit and how those countries have the ability to produce a lower cost product and still remain profitable. What about you, Vicky? Are there any other threats that you can see on the horizon? Well, we see, we're worried in a way about any new deal because it sets a precedent which can affect all following deals um, and also can affect national policy. Um, You know, if there's talk about equivalence in standards, um, it could be driving um, a change in standards in the UK if we've got that in a deal Um, and talk of trade-offs that involve lower standards on issues like pesticide use, residues, antibiotics, workers, for instance, worker rules in meat plants, very different in the US from the UK and obviously animal welfare fair food and and baby foods, for instance, big differences in baby food standards. And Tom mentioned pork in the US. They obviously use dopamine as a hormone over there. That, you know, all these things, if we're going to talk about equivalence in standards, there's real, we see huge risks there to our um, farmers, their livelihoods, and to our food system in terms of safety and quality and health. And looking specifically at the US, you mentioned the Biden presidency before. How likely is it that we will get a deal with the US that includes agriculture now that he's president? 
I mean, you said that we're not going to get it anytime soon. Is it going to come at all? Well, our best guess is, is it, it probably won't be revived till 2023. That's what we're, we're thinking. Uh, it's a very low priority. As I said, he's doing a big, big policy review, which covers all the policies, including trade and climate. And that I'm just thinking that might be why Liz Truss was talking, Liz Truss, Trade Secretary, was talking about climate goods last week. So putting that on the agenda and having tariffs removed if they've got high highly green products um but you know this is all not going to happen very quickly um and so we should be looking at other opportunities um and other you know as i said <laughs> protecting our near near markets tom what do you think about that are we going to get a us uk trade deal i mean 2023 it does it it sounds like it's a couple of years off but actually in terms of the amount of time that it usually takes to negotiate a trade agreement, that's not really that long, is it? Yeah, it isn't really. I think if we look at, you know, some historic trade deals that have been signed, it's it's been multiple years, much longer than two or three years. But I'd, I'd agree with what, what Vicky said. I think it's gone right down the sort of priority list in terms of um, Biden's administration in general. You know, he's come out publicly and said they want to sort domestic policy priorities before even looking at foreign foreign policy priorities and even when they do get to those foreign policy priorities the thing like the airbus boeing dispute uh, relations with china that, that they may want to put further up the the priority list i think um in the short term what is actually more likely is potentially some people are calling them mini trade deals but they're effectively mini concessions from either side so looking at how they can things like the technical restrictions on on sheep meat for the uk for instance and and things like that so that there is the potential for those more smaller concessions to be made in, in the meantime but I agree with vicky i think it's it's probably for a little bit down the priority list uh, in in the short term and what about these deals with new zealand and australia what's the time scale going to be for getting those agreement agreements over the line tom i mean this, this is actually quite a tricky one to answer i think because i think like we all said that trade deals take a, a lot of a lot of time to negotiate and with the case of New Zealand and Australia it would be sort of looking at a blank blank canvas really and building building from the bottom up um I think there's a lot of noise about the negotiations progressing quickly um all the parties are keen to con- conclude something as soon as possible I think you know as is inevitable in any trade deal negotiations it's those sensitive areas which often t- hold up progress so despite you know other areas progressing well it, it, in numerous chapters it's those sensitive areas that are taking the time and are always going to take the time i think both new zealand and australia are optimistic for a trade deal in 2021 uh, optimistic being probably the the key word i think i wouldn't be surprised if if those negotiations spill over into 2022 just because they are completely new agreements and they, they take time to negotiate. And I think it's, you know, like we, like we were just saying, even if something was signed in 2022, that would still be exceptionally quick for a sort of comprehensive trade deal to be, to be agreed. Vicky, would you agree with that? And do you think that these things are moving so quickly that perhaps there isn't enough scrutiny of what's happening in, in Parliament and other places? Yes, yes, I do. I think there's definitely not enough scrutiny and a lot of uh, parliamentarians are t- saying the same thing. Joint letters from groups of MPs, etc., flying around all over the place. We definitely need more scrutiny. But there's also an issue with the, the Trans-Pacific Agreement, which is across um, numerous countries in the Pacific region, which um, the Trade Secretary 
has announced we, we're obviously going to join. But that trade agreement, which is the CPTPP, which is a complicated acronym, um, included the US originally. It was designed and the text was agreed with the US, who has now pulled out, Trump pulled out. As you say, trade deals take a long time to, to happen. But we are now seemingly hurtling headlong into it, this complex bid trade partnership with partners half a world away. Um, and it's already agreed. So we have no chance to renegotiate what's in that. And New Zealand and Australia are part of that. So we may find serious differences, um, for instance, on welfare, chemicals. Um, and countries can do side letters, which are part of a, a trade deal with members of the partnership to set up specific issues where we can do deals, where it doesn't affect the other members of the partnership. But this is a, a trans-Pacific huge new um, block when we're just leaving one block, we're getting into another block. Um, so it's going to be very complicated. I don't think anything's going to happen fast. But as Tom says, Australia and New Zealand are sort of obvious partners in some ways. And we really need to be careful that we don't let go on any of our good standards. That follows on quite nicely to my next question, which is about standards. Um, we know Vic has explained why the threat of low standard imports has been one of the main concerns for UK farmers since the Brexit referendum. Can we just go back to basics for a minute on this, though, please, Tom? Can you explain why standards are such a fundamental part of trade deals? You know, we have all this different jargon as well as CPTPP. We have technical barriers to trade, TBTs and sanitary and phytosanitary measures, SPS. And it just all seems quite confusing. What, what does it mean and why should farmers care? So, yeah, you've mentioned there things like I'm getting myself mixed up now, sanitary and phytosanitary measures and technical barriers to trade. And it is all very jargony, WTO speak and stuff like that. I think the bottom line is that, you know, the reason we have standards, both domestically and within trade deals, is ultimately to protect human, animal and plant health. Now, standards differ across the world for a variety of reasons, such as differences in climate, pest and disease burdens or, or lack of them, or differences in, in food safety conditions for that food consumed domestically. And I think it's for this reason that within trade, partners need to recognise equivalence, you know, basically where standards are different in two countries on paper, but the ultimate outcome for animal and plant health and human health is the same. Now, at WTO level, this is based on the best scientific data that is available and that standards you know, at face value should not be used as a barrier to trade above and beyond what is needed to ensure those human, animal and plant safety aspects. However, when we're talking about free trade agreements, where the standards and the level of equivalence are at the discretion of the two negotiating parties, parties, sorry, and not the WTO, agreeing that equivalence, especially where it would allow more favourable access than just trading on WTO terms, well, I think that can be a little trickier to agree upon. I think the, and it comes down to really where the bottom line is that, you know, a number of countries that we're doing, uh, we're entering into negotiations with will meet whatever standards the UK chooses to place in a free trade agreement, especially these countries that we're lining up to secure agreements with. You know, they're already very adept at meeting tens, if not hundreds of different market requirements that differ from their own domestic market. Australia is quite a good example, really, and them exporting beef to the, to the EU. They have the UCAS 
European Union Catalyst Urban Scheme, which is full traceability along the supply chain from a select number of farms that are slaughtered at select uh, export plants on specific days to ensure that all of those requirements for the EU market are hit. And so these countries are quite adept at putting these sorts of schemes in place. And I think we need to we need to recognise that from a farm standpoint that standards in themselves aren't just a barrier to, to trade. Vicky, do you want to add anything on that? I mean, Tom's touched on the fact that we get all this all this jargon from the World Trade Organization and they're looking specifically at um, animal plant and human health, but they don't necessarily look as in-depth at things like animal welfare or climate change, for example, do they? Do the WTO rules go far enough in that respect? No, not at all. Um, it's very much a low, the, you know, the lowest bar that can be agreed, I, I think, although, you know, I agree with everything Tom said, it's it's there for a reason. Um, and But what we're concerned at, and the millions of public that expressed concern last year by signing letters and petitions, is that, you know, if we don't have any red lines in the, in the UK to protect those standards, when they start talking about what's equivalent, um, in, in a free trade deal, who decides what is equivalent and how? Who's in, who's in the room? And, who, you know, what research are you using? Do you use the precautionary principle to make sure that you're not setting up yourself for a disaster in the future? But also, Abby, as you said, it, it doesn't cover things like environment very well, um, climate at all, um, and environmental standards. And obviously, they are different in different countries. You know, our, our protection of our hedgerows wouldn't be appropriate for somewhere like New Zealand, for instance. So, you know, it, 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 it has to be a big discussion and a, a compromise and decisions. But what we've got to be clear of is what we want to protect um, uh, in, in the UK for our um, environment, the landscapes, for our health and our animal welfare. And, you know, any any agreement must be scrutiny, have be under scrutiny by our parliamentarians. I just wanted to, wanted to add that. I'd be interested to know sort of Vicky, Vicky's thoughts. I think, you know, for historically, the the WTO has, I guess, tried to make a distinction between the fact that there's no real relation between the environment, climate change and trade. I think that conversation is starting to change slightly. Yes. There's talks about Mm. the climate waivers and border adjustment mechanisms and that is, you know... It's going to change. It is is going to change. Yeah. And I think it'll be interesting now that the UK is its own member of the WTO, sort of how we can um, you know, inform that debate go, going forward. Absolutely, and show leadership if we can through what we, you know, what we push for, how we discuss it, what debates are had at the COP um, around trade. Because you're absolutely right; it's a critical issue that is is has risen right up the agenda and can't be ignored in in trade discussions. One way of getting around all these standard issues that we've been talking about would be to get the public to buy British whenever or wherever possible. And farmers wanted people to buy local way before the referendum was ever even suggested. Why is it so difficult to get people to do this? Vicky, do you want to go first and Tom will come back to you? Well, I think you're right. People do want to buy um, British. They want to buy local. They want to, you know, they want to know where their food has come from, but they can't always. Um, and that may be to do with price, but it's also to do with confusion, especially when products are imported and processed and labelled as UK produce. So we need better and well-enforced labelling regulation on country of origin and method of production, we'd say. So we know how the you know, for instance, the animals have been treated. Um, and ideally, we'd also build, build in more direct supply chains so more folk can buy more direct from farmers and, and not have such a commodified, complex, long distance 
um, system. I mean, I might sound idealistic here, but it is actually happening. A lot more local supply chains are being built, particularly after the um, pandemic. People want to get produce more close to home. So I think I think that um, is a problem for people on, on several levels. But I think there is a, a way to actually um, improve the situation if you have good labelling and better access for people for local produce. Tom, do you do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I have a couple of things actually, and I think just to reiterate what what Vicky was saying is that um, the coronavirus pandemic has altered the way a lot of people shop. Um, I think obviously the vast majority of people still go to their local supermarket uh, for food. However, there has been a massive shift of people wanting to buy local. So uh, personally, outside of my HDB job, I work on a dairy farm. And we have a couple of vending machines on farm selling various farm produced products. And the increase in traffic since the first lockdown has been, you know, astronomical. We, we were actually expecting it to drop off quite a bit after after that first lockdown, you know, as supermarkets got around their social distancing measures, etc. But it has stayed really consistent. And, you know, the comments we're getting from the customers is that they love to be able to know exactly where their food has come from and love being able to see the farm, etc. And you know, it's these sorts of things that are looking like a more permanent switch as opposed to just the fad of the first lockdown and trying to get to somewhere conveniently, uh, you know, aside from the supermarket. And my family back in the northwest of England are, are, are butchers and have seen exactly the same thing. Um, I, still, I still think it's, you know, still a, lot, a, a small portion of the market, but it is, it is definitely growing and, and building in momentum. I think more broadly, when we look at those um, consumer trends and we carry out a number of surveys on buying intentions of what shoppers say they will do versus what they actually will do, they're often quite different. You know, and, that, and like Vicky said, price being the overriding factor. And I think, you know, coming up to this potentially turbulent time economically as the country recovers from the coronavirus, price may well be the top of mind for, you know, many consumers. Um, I think. You know, at, at a retail level, there is quite a good um, support from domestic retailers stocking British produce. Um, you know, numbers of stores have, have various commitments around st- stocking that, that British produce. I think it does become a little bit more ambiguous when we get to the food service sector, where labelling isn't quite as prevalent and potentially customer, consumers aren't, aren't factoring origin uh, into their menu choices above and beyond what what Vicky Vicky mentioned earlier. We talked earlier about the importance of exports. What work is AHDB doing to improve market access abroad and to develop new markets for UK products, Tom? So here at AHDB, we've got a dedicated export team um, who work on a number of things. A lot of the work is carried out to improve market access and, and remove some of those technical barriers. So the recent opening of Japanese market for beef and lamb China and the US of beef products shows the you know the real world value of this work. Going forward, that, that export team are going to be working on removing technical barriers um, to, to improve access to the China, China and Taiwan for lamb, uh, South Korea for beef and, and pork for Mexico. On the on the development side, you know, developing those markets that we already have access to, COVID disruption like pretty much every other uh, industry has seen development work pivot to sort of this virtual world. So we've been running virtual showcase events and real time sort of business to business meetings. Uh, we've also 
you know, aside from that work, we've appointed agencies in, in key strategic markets such as China, Japan, Middle East and the US um, to support that, you know, in-market presence we already have here in the, in the UK. These agencies are effectively helping to communicate the message to supply chains that the UK is a, is a valuable source of product and, and championing those sort of high quality, high assurance credentials that we have, have to offer. And this, this is sort of bolstered by a suite of uh, digital marketing activity that goes on in the in these markets, which is tailored specifically to those certain markets based on our international consumer research work and you know what sort of products resonate with consumers in, in those markets. And, and and finally, we you know we're we're present at a number of global food trade shows, you know, showcasing British products and improving the understanding of, of British products to to new markets and, and new customers. Vicky, is there anything more that government could be doing to help support AHDB and the wider industry in this kind of work? Well, in, in my memory is a picture of Boris Johnson holding up a Tim Tam, you know, the Australian um, chocolate biscuit and celebrating the idea that we'll be getting those coming here. It doesn't really make sense to have more food flying halfway across the globe when we have a climate and nature crisis. I think we should be focusing on, on sustainable production and trade. It should be a priority everywhere and where there's clear ecological and geographic advantage. So, yeah, I agree what Tom said, you know, getting it right where we do have an ecological and geographic advantage and, and having the right sort of trade um, ambassadors, so to speak. But really, let's let's make sense of our food system um, without assuming that we've got to fly or ship things all across the world just because we can. Tom? Some another question about AHDB's work. How are you helping farmers to improve their profitability over the coming years with all the change that's coming to the UK's trading environment, as we've been discussing, but also domestic policy? Um, that, that's going to change as well. All this change is heading their way. How are you going to help them to cope with that and boost the bottom lines? Yeah, so this brings me you know, back to one of the key pieces of work we did actually over the last couple of years. And this, this was our Brexit impact assessment report. And, you know, in that we discovered that in, in all the scenarios on the outcome of a, a Brexit deal, the loss of the basic payment scheme and the move away from the EU's common agricultural, common agricultural policy had the biggest effect on farm incomes. And we also discovered that in all of the scenarios, the top 25% of performers, which is measured by how efficiently they turn inputs into outputs. So it's not just about, you know, bigger is, is better. It's that ratio of, of, of performance. And these top 25% of performers consistently remained in a profitable situation, regardless of the scenario. And we built on this work in our characteristics of top performing farms report, which looks in detail just exactly what these farms were doing and how levy payers can adopt these characteristics on their own farms in order to become more resilient in the face of the coming policy changes. And now anybody listening to this that's interested can access all of this work from our EU exit page or, or knowledge library on the AHDB website. Um, going forward, we're going to be building on this work and we recognise that, you know, while trade is, is, is very important, it's that domestic policy change that is going to affect the widest breadth of farmers in, in the UK. And we're going to be looking at what these top performing farms are currently doing to prepare for this policy change. In, in conjunction with this, we're also developing a range of model farms with a number of farms in each sector that's meant to represent various farming styles across the country. Now, now we all know there's no such thing as a, an average farm, and we, we hear it a lot, a lot from levy payers when we talk about average farms. Or that's not 
applicable to my farm. And so we wanted to create a, a number of farms in each sector so that farmers can have something that they can relate their own business to. Now, these model farms will help inform on-farm decision-making and take some of that trial and error out if they can see the effects of the changes in the model before trying them out in real life on-farm. The reality is that the, the, you know, the new environmental schemes will be unlikely to be as generous as BPS and there's going to be work needed to, in order to receive those payments. So farmers need to examine their business and work out how best to make up that shortfall which is probably going to come from a mix of increased efficiency, diversification and participation in, in new environmental schemes. We're also doing some economic modelling work to, to quantify the impacts at a farm gate level, what some of these trade deals might actually mean for farmers. We're, we're doing this work in conjunction with Harper Adams University. Um, Australia is first up. Um, we wanted to produce around about two reports per year, which... Uh, and which trade deals we analyse will actually very much depend on how the negotiations progress and which trade deals are seen as a priority. I do want to just mention, though, that that, you know, that work that I've just been talking about is quite specific in what's coming from our, our my team within the Market Intelligence Department. I think more broadly, AHDB are about to embark on a new five-year strategy and helping farmers improve their prof profitability is at the heart of that. Whether that's, you know, in our market intelligence information, our market development work, both domestically and internationally, or improving farm performance through our farm excellence network, all of which is underpinned by robust evidence. We recognise that farming is going through a huge transformation, both from a policy and trade perspective. I think our key objective is to ensure that every business that is able and willing to adapt to the new normal is given the best opportunity to do so. You know, we know farmers are resilient. You just have to look at the last 30 years, foot and mouth, blue tongue, TB, BSE, to name but a few shots to the industry. But the key to the to resilience is that ability for, you know, businesses to adapt to a new normal, as opposed to battening down those hatches and, and waiting for the storm to pass. This this time, leaving the EU has has, you know, fundamentally changed the trade and policy environment for farmers coupled with things like climate change and, and other environmental challenges that we're currently facing, we need farmers to embrace this change, start looking at what inevitable opportunities that can come from this, that are going to come from this period that they can, they can capitalise on. So you're quite busy then, Tom? <laughs> Just a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Vicky, are you confident that the industry can weather all these changes that Tom's talked about that are on the horizon? I mean, these things we've been talking about for years now, they're finally starting to happen. Are farmers prepared? Well, it's interesting. And, you know, there's a lot of great benchmarking work by AHDB and, and other organisations working on innovative approaches, which, which is really exciting to see. And, and some farms are prepared, but it's very hard for, for many other farms, you know, when the margins are so low, they're squeezed so often. Um, and there's but there's a shift in farming that does need to be rewarded, um, you know, as we're talking about the environmental schemes and the wider agricultural transition that DEFRA have laid out, all the different schemes, and supporting farmer um, action on pollution, soil erosion, protecting nature and so on. The market should be rewarding that, but also public money for public goods where the market can't. So I think farmers are, are, are 
you know, we've had four years of talking about this. We've now had the pilot rolling out, but we've really got to make sure farmers feed back to DEFRA about whether that pilot works, whether the new schemes work. And there's schemes on animal health and welfare um, and schemes on, on farmers during the transition, which they should access so they can get prepared. But I think one of the key things that DEFRA really doesn't seem to be grasping is the need for um, on-farm advice, independent advice for farmers on how to do these things differently and, and focus on profit and sustainability rather than just yields and, and issues like that. And the other aspect that I think it really needs to have action, and we're doing a big survey of farmers at the moment with, um, with a, a polling company around the supply chain and, and investing in supply chain and infrastructure will support farmers doing things differently. So having different marketplaces that farmers can sell to, possibly sell to collectively um, and, and those kind of things, looking at the supply chain infrastructure that's needed for a new era of farming and to feed into, as we were talking about earlier, there's consumers who want to get um, more direct um, produce or, or through a better food trader. So I think, you know, farmers are becoming prepared. They're going to have to. Um, and it's great what AHDB are doing in, in sort of giving um, good benchmarking processes. Um, there's a lot out there we can learn from. So we're getting there. This is such an interesting discussion and we could go off in so many different directions, but unfortunately I'm going to have to call time for this month. Um, thank you to both of you, Tom and Vicky, for an absolutely fascinating discussion. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> And thank you to you, our listeners. We hope you enjoyed the show. We will, of course, be back soon with more. But in the meantime, why not subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes of Over the Farm Gates? Until next month, from us at FG and AHDB, thank you for listening. We hope you stay safe and well. Goodbye for now.